1: Welcome to New Books in Critical theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Egala Rizovituuta about the will to predict orchestrating the future through science. Uh, so welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you Dave. thank it's nice to be here
1: um, this I mean this is a genuinely incredible book. It's absolutely fascinating um, both in terms of its subject matter. Um, in terms of the kind of story it's trying to tell but also and, and we might sort of get into this uh, later on in the podcast uh, about what it might tell us about kind of how we live you know right now in in the modern world and and I suppose all good kind of um, history and, and, and sort of cultural studies of, of, of history and histories of science and technologies are, are like that they've got that historical and that contemporary element. But I guess, it, it, given that um, it's such a kind of fascinating subject, I'm, I'm intrigued to know sort of where you got the idea that you'd write a book about um, the history of scientific predictions within Soviet Russia. Um, was that part of your kind of broader research agenda, or um, was it just something, you know, that kind of came to you as this is a great idea?
0: Yeah. Th- well, first of all, thank you for your uh, generous words about the book. Um, indeed, the very idea to write this book came uh, from. Um, uh, it is of course rooted in my past research, and I will say a few more, wor- more words about it. But really, I became increasingly interested in this very problem of predictability. So now you, you see it everywhere. You know, in the public debate, that the world is becoming unpredictable. That uh, we are facing global climate crisis. Uh, you know, that there are all these limits to imagination of where the world is going to. There is increasingly uh, challenging pressures in terms of social and political and economic insecurity. And this was kind of thinking that uh, both social imagination and contemporary science are somehow less able to, to see what is going to happen in the future. And the world prediction of, inability to predict is thrown into this debate very often. So uh, I became intrigued. So wh- what does it really mean to predict uh, and to predict scientifically? How scientific predictions are different from any other, you know, attempts to imagine, to conjecture future events? Um, so that was kind of, so to speak, real-life real, real life motivation to look into this concept. Um, but otherwise, I was Working for the last couple of decades on the history of scientific expertise and how it is used in um, public uh, policy and government. And I'm particularly interested in the role of scientific expertise in the context where institutions are trying to liberalize and democratize themselves. Uh, So, this is why I've been working mainly with um, East European case studies, particularly the Soviet communist institutions. In the early and mid 20th century, but also in the post Soviet period, I'm very much interested in uh, the role of science and scientific knowledge uh, in arranging political and social relations. And so, um, you know, the very project of um, Western modernity uh, has been theorized as an attempt to rationalize uh, the present and the future, and as an attempt to Likewise, to, to know the future, to predict the future, um, and in the years 2012 and 2015, um, I was lucky to work with Professor Jenny Anderson at Sciences Po in Paris on the Future Pole project, where Anderson was looking at the political history of the future. Uh, so again, there, there are now so many studies about, uh, you know the intellectual history, the sociology, kind of institutional analysis of future expertise, economic predictions, social predictions, uh, even political predictions, environmental predictions. It's it's like a growing field. Uh, But what does it really mean to predict? Uh, It's not always quite clear. So what I try to do with this book is to bring some more uh, clarity to the debate and to trace the development of scientific prediction throughout history with a focus on, uh, well, as you say, Soviet Russian, but really on European cases. So it's not an attempt to to look how uh, prediction developed uh, globally in non-European context. It's really focused on, on the European context, and that's an important limitation. So indeed, the, uh, So the book originated from, you know, this observation that not enough attention has been paid to prediction. When I started, and initially I thought maybe it will be either a chapter or a small book. But the more I started to look into the history of prediction, you know, the more (laughs) was coming up. And uh, in the end, I wrote this book as a, a wider argument to call for something that could be, no, seen as the status of prediction or prediction studies, similar to risk studies. So we have um, a huge and a very interesting area of interdisciplinary risk studies, where risks are uh, analyzed from technical, uh, cultural, political, uh, perspectives. And I think that it is time to do the same with prediction. So in order to really have a well-informed and competent uh, academic, but also public discussion about the future, we really need to have a better literacy about scientific prediction in a similar way to the understanding of risk. I
1: mean, what, One thing the book tries to do is explain what scientific prediction actually it's uh both in in terms of um kind of practical application maybe it's um i mean evolution's the wrong word isn't it because that's got a certain kind of teleological element to it but um but there is a kind of sense of of the way scientific prediction has developed and been given different forms of um both social status application and content um so how does the book kind of define it what are we talking about when we're talking about
0: scientific prediction yeah absolutely so um the history of scientific prediction of course is the history of knowledge and what does it mean to understand reality is it possible to understand reality uh, are we living in some sort of matrix, right do, do we construct reality but and fool ourselves but we, we have some sort of objective instruments for understanding uh, so prediction is really really interesting and first of all, I have to say that there are very interesting comparative studies of pre-modern prediction in European, uh, Chinese um, and, and other contexts. But I was looking mainly in the European context, so, so that's really, really important to, um, to say. And, uh, and this is because the existing approaches to prediction in, uh, in contemporary public policy and science are, are really very much euro so that. That's both problematic, but that's that's how it is. So I was tracking the history of European scientific prediction, and so um, one can see that the very first. Um, notions of prediction in Europe have been articulated in uh, ancient Greek and Roman uh, philosophical treatises. And uh, very important distinctions were made at that time to differentiate between two types of knowledge. And one type of human knowledge uh, was called scientia the knowledge that looks into causes. So what are the causes of all these different events or phenomena which are observed? Um, And other type of knowledge was looking more at science, kind of not for causes, but for meanings. And um, those of you who are kind of well-versed in the philosophy of science, that connects very clearly to current debates about explanation versus interpretation, Right. So this is where it's coming from. So now, what is really interesting is that in this uh, classical period, uh, the only reliable sciences were those which were able to identify clear causes. So it would, this would be geometry, uh, mathematics, physics, mechanics. Uh, because we were studying rea- forms of reality which appeared quite regular and quite systematic. But such things as, you know, weather or human health or political events, dealing with fast changes, um, irreversible changes, uh, apparently really quite chaotic, uh, not systematic forms of reality, they couldn't be, what causes were not uh, possible to identify, so those forms of reality were studied a kind of a domain of mantic knowledge. And so prediction emerged as part of mantic knowledge. So uh, science, according to this view, was uh, trying to find uh, certainty and causes, whilst uh, predictive knowledge was trying to track to get some sense of this fast of, of those fast changing events or very unstable realities and to make guesses or conjectures about what might possibly happen right uh, and, and this is really really interesting um, so so this uh, I'm, I'm also in in, um, in one chapter i'm trying to show how um how prediction or how this semantic knowledge uh, eventually were incorporated in the uh, arsenal of modern science. So that happened in the 17th and 18th century when um, the attempt to predict and to address irregular forms of reality became a task for all Sciences indeed. And uh, one can say that, um, you know, kind of I'm really fast tracking now <laughs> through centuries. So um, the scientific ambition grew, and what we have even with contemporary science is an attempt to uh, understand all sorts of extremely fast changing, very complex processes at both. Uh, my, nano, very kind of micro level, like in quantum mechanics, uh, to very macro level, like uh, the status of the universe, but also all sorts of changing genetic, uh, psychoneurological, biological realities, but also complex social events. So, for instance, uh, how do you, um, uh, can human behavior be predicted? Can collective uh, human behavior be predicted? Can we predict future wars? Can we predict the outcomes of uh, present wars? So all, all those kind of uh, forms of reality where it is very difficult to identify clear causes we uh, wouldn't be we wouldn't categorize as suitable for the form of knowledge as uh, this classical sciencia. But we require this particular, specific, uh, little bit imperfect knowledge, which is predictive. So, so this is this basic categorization that I try to unpack um, in my book.
1: I mean, if that's a sort of quite high level, I guess, kind of abstract framing of the meaning of scientific prediction and, and perhaps some of its Uh, kind of developments. maybe we we could give uh, a few examples of of how uh, that understanding plays out in practice and and obviously you know russia and and soviet russia um, in particular is is the case study and and maybe we'll take uh, sort of three or four examples that are in the book the first one i guess which is the one that listeners are probably kind of most familiar with will be uh, the idea of um, sort of uh, statistical forecasting particularly in the context of things like economic policy um, and I guess bits of kind of social policy that that intersect with with planning uh, in the kind of classic uh, Soviet model. So what's that um, kind of early history uh, of that sort of forecasting um, in, in Russia and in uh, the Soviet state?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in, a, in in Russia or rather in the Russian empire of uh late 16th, early 17th, and 18th centuries, uh, the problems that uh, the country was facing was pretty similar to any other states, really, in Europe. Uh, It was the problem of population and natural resources. And uh, there was this increasing uh, ambition developing to, to account for population and natural resources and the emerging economy In scientific ways, and uh, and to do that, initially, very kind of basic methods of uh, kind of financial accounting uh, were done to to work out basically what is what is the scope of trade and uh, what sort of taxation system is in place and what is what kind of national income um, the state has, And, and there are lots of histories of the development of the political economy of European states, which are looking into those periods and those processes. So what I'm trying to do in my book, and which I find really interesting, is the intensification of those attempts in the late 18th and 19th centuries. And and this is when uh, the discipline of mathematics uh, was uh, introduced in uh, in the Russian Empire. So when French mathematicians traveled to St. Petersburg to establish the first mathematical departments. And in doing that, they brought statistical methods of forecasting. Uh, The only problem in the 18th century with mathematical forecasting or like projecting statistical data into the future was that we didn't have enough data. So the whole 19th century in uh, the Russian Empire could be regarded as a foundational period when... uh, um, Population level statistics was incrementally accumulated. And it's very interesting. This gathering of data was connected through uh, the development of lots of uh, public institutions, such as public hygiene, the military, uh, but also uh, meteorological institutions, uh, meteorological forecasting, which was uh, intrinsically linked with the needs of agriculture, but also prospection of uh, natural resources like mining uh, and so on. So so this data was eventually emerging. It was such a slow process, and this is something that I try to really highlight in my book. And the big difference between the Russian Empire and Western European countries was that uh, uh, population statistics in the West uh, in the 18th and 19th century were primarily... uh, collected to solve the so-called uh, urban problem uh, it was like a response to increasing urbanization and social unrest and m- migration from rural to urban areas well the, in the russian empire we didn't have that problem it was still mainly uh, agricultural society but it's interesting to also to look back into this uh, genealogy of uh, scientific forecasting which today we see you know through the all sorts of algorithmic applications, and to to be aware just how tightly it was connected with agriculture science and trade uh, and agricultural economy. So in Russia, you see really a lot of that. And then with the uh, communist revolution in uh, 1917, 1918, when uh, the communist government embarked on uh, modernizing. Um, Russia, when a whole range of uh, state planning institutions were established to collect more data about the population, about the economy, about the natural resources, to to construct a genuinely uh, modern um, urban industrial um, economy, and so uh, one can see that. That's why the book is called The Will to Predict. The Will to Forecast was there in the 18th century, but the possibilities to do that were not there because of the shortage of data. Uh, The Will to Forecast, uh, scientifically, in the Russian Empire, but also elsewhere, and then in the communist Russia, uh, became extremely acute in the first half of the 20th century and particularly in between two world wars because it was economically such a turbulent and insecure period. But again, data was being collected but it was still not full of them. Uh, so what we today understand as, you know, this kind of the practice of forecasting as fairly routine and, you know, we can read Thousands of forecasts every day, and they are more or less reliable. So this comes into being only in the nineteen fifties and sixties. And so, yeah, that's what I try to, to to show in my book: this very long and incremental history of forecasting, and how it was. Um, What were the factors that uh, stimulated government's interest in the practice of forecasting, but also uh, what were the limitations and institutional constraints for doing that?
1: The book is also full of uh, some quite fascinating and quite problematic uh, characters, um, as well as being, I I suppose, a more kind of macro history and, and, and sort of... Um, So later on in in the chronological story um, are are a couple of of key, I guess, kind of management gurus um, in in the, I suppose, kind of modern uh, sense. And I wonder if you could introduce uh, one of those and basically kind of give a sense of the story of um, the move, I suppose, from um, that kind of planning forecasting into the idea of, Uh, Russia having a sort of management science.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the problem with uh, the Soviet Russia and the Soviet Union was that although uh, the regime kind of to be based on the scientific foundation was, was the ideology. So there was a very strong political will to use to deploy science for making policy decisions and to uh, fund scientific research uh, relevant for all sorts of areas, like the economy, society, uh, building infrastructure, uh, culture. Um, the irony, or rather the tragedy, was that uh, because of uh, the domination of communist, uh, of the Soviet Communist Party, uh, the actual uh, possibilities to do proper science were sometimes sometimes severely limited and sometimes uh, strange to say the least. So, what I try to show in my book is uh, how particular communities, one can see scientific or epistemological communities, emerged in this very uneasy authoritarian uh, context and tried to do what we saw as proper science about the future to create predictive knowledge regardless of all sorts of political and social difficulties that we had and, and so indeed uh, many chapters focus on distinct figures which were quite uh, foundational uh, for the fields and in my view we were also really original and creative thinkers so we deserve a place in the context of uh, wider history of of wide um, uh, intellectual history of governance and management and organization. Uh, so, so the first uh, person uh, whom I would like to mention, and uh, he he's he's sort of he's he's really known internationally, but. Probably mainly among economists, and this is Nikolai Kondratyev, uh, one of the first Russian sociologists, professional sociologists who was born in 1892 and he was he died tragically in 1938 executed by Stalin. and Nikolai Kondratyev was charged to precisely build institutions to collect population level data and uh, national economic data in order to create forecasts of the future of the Soviet economy. So, Kondratiev established such an institute in 1920s, and um, and he was supposed to inform the so, the famous or notorious Soviet five-year plans. Uh, however, Kondratiev, as uh, a genuinely committed scientist, he immediately resisted that... Uh, kind of uh, request from the government saying that uh, the discipline of economics just simply wasn't ready. There was not enough data, there was not enough uh, uh, methodological not sufficient mathematical methodology to forecast uh, with any certain you know, the development of Soviet economy in 5, 10, or 20 years. Uh, and that was a very unpopular thing to say, as you can imagine. But what's interesting is that Kondratiev developed his own theory of uh, business cycles. It was not entirely original, uh, Similar fierosa models were also developed in, uh, in Germany and, and in the United States particularly. Uh, but his particular model uh, has survived and it's still used by, um, by economists. It's known as Kondratiev Waves. And his argument is that economic growth goes in 40 to 60 years cycles of boom and bust. And both are determined by infrastructural, but also all sorts of economic factors. So, so that's, that's kind of interesting. So although Kondratiev was executed in the 1930s as part of Stalin's crackdown on really independent scientific thinking, uh, his ideas lived on, and if you look, you will find lots of debates today. That now in 2020 we are at the bottom of Kondratiev's wave, and if you use his model, we are looking into have uh, five or ten years of misery. Uh, so, so it's a, a very, very interesting figure, and to me, Kondratiev is a symbol of um, using, developing predictive knowledge as a way to critique. Uh, political uh, initiatives to push through uh, certain reforms and uh, attempts to co-opt statistics and science just to support those political projects rather than to really be informed by the scientific expertise. Another character uh, or figure that uh, you have mentioned is uh, the really very influential um, Soviet management guru, I think we can really use this uh, word, uh, Georgi Shadravitsky. Uh, so Georgi Shadravitsky is a completely different person from Kondratyev. He was born in uh, 1929 and uh, died in 1994. And Most of his career unfolded in the 1960s, 70s, and the 80s. And so his work coincides with um, with the late Soviet period after World War II. And uh, the situation, the context in which uh, Shadravitsky worked was very different from Kondratiev. So if Kondratiev was facing, one can say, like an institutional desert, uh, he had to establish um, prediction, predictive uh, knowledge building institutions like almost from the scratch. Shudrowitsky was already born into a very extensive and extremely bureaucratized Soviet institutional apparatus. So for people, maybe it's difficult to imagine, but in the Soviet Union, research um, infrastructure was extremely kind of blown up. It was huge. So there were zillions of administrations and zillions of research institutes employing thousands of researchers and bureaucrats and administrators and that was all uh, the result of a highly centralized process of planning so there was lots of bureaucracy and uh, um, yeah and uh, administrative bureaucracy which was extremely ineffective and many many scholars argue that Partially, why the Soviet Union collapsed was because of this uh, stifling impact of uh, excessive bureaucratization. So Chodrovsky, he was he was trained as a philosopher. He became interested in uh, also in psychology and cognitive psychology and psychology of learning. And uh, basically, when facing this extremely um, politicized. And uh, profoundly administered uh, Soviet reality and how it was inefficient and how it didn't work, uh, Shadravsky became kind of curious how this could be changed and could people self organize outside this, you know, Weberian bureaucratic um, cage. Um, he, he So he came, all, he, the, the destiny of Shadrovisky is also interesting. He was very much an elite scholar. He was born um, uh, in Odessa, but he grew up in Moscow, uh, part of a uh, very highly educated, very well-connected family. He went to top universities. He even taught in uh, prestigious uh, institutes. But he kind of fell... Um, he he was repressed in the late sixties because he supported uh, several uh, dissident um, philosophers who were his friends. So he himself wasn't dissident, but he was loyal to his friends, and therefore he couldn't really continue his uh, academic career as a philosopher by the 70s and 80s. But uh, what he did, he sought shelter in the institutes of design and management. And that turned out to be a very conducive environment for him to develop his ideas about organization of human behavior outside of administrative um, context. And so Shadrowski came up with the idea of uh, reflexive prospective reflexivity. And uh, this is really interesting. Again, maybe he's not 100% original, but the way he uh, articulated his theory is really interesting. So many of you would be familiar with the idea of reflection. So when we think about reflexive modernity or Western subjectivity it's, it's something key for any individual mind, to reflect upon itself, right? Or for people to make sense of a situation, they, they do that by reflecting on what happened in the past. So the very concept of reflexivity normally is directed internally and to the past. So what Shadravitsky did, he said, look, but reflexivity is also directed into the future. It's about projecting self into the future, and the future is never individual. The future is always collective because individuals are always part of behavioral and interactive networks. So he started to develop a super complicated cognitive uh, theory trying to formalize uh, and to describe also mathematically this process in which uh, people project their own identity and behavior into the future. And uh, he also wanted to make that theory not just descriptive or normative, but practical. Uh, so in, in relation to that, he uh, created uh, an entire set of what he called methodology of facilitating management and organization activities by training um managers and teams in different contexts, this could be enterprises, this could be local government institutions, Uh, so basically teaching people to be, um, to engage with future reflexively and collectively. And that uh, method uh, became known as uh, kind of methodological methodological circle and in the 1980s, uh, there was such a huge demand uh, in the Soviet Union really just to do something because management was dysfunctional. Uh, the economy was declining. There was a huge need to build a massive infrastructure like nuclear power plants, uh, gas um, extraction, oil extraction, uh, all sorts of very complex uh, chemical processing facilities, Uh, not to speak about, uh, you know, building um, apartments for people to live in. And all those construction projects were delayed by years and years. So today we can think, you know, about HS2 and how it is delayed and its cost is spiraling. So in the Soviet Union, it was similar that everything was continuously delayed. And then and something really interesting happens. So, although Shadravitsky was not, he was kind of politically stained, but the demand. To do something about those impossible inf- delays in building infrastructure was so grave that he, uh, he was invited to consult, um, for example, the building of Beloyarsk nuclear power plant, uh, developing integrated industrial systems in uh, East Siberia, uh, developing uh, urban development in Riga, large growing city. So he spent the 1980s storing uh, the entire Soviet Union and disseminating his approach. And uh, although he died in 1994, his son, Pyotr Shadravitsky, continued his work. And uh, Petr Šedrovisky was actually the first, uh, he, he pioneered cultural policy research in uh, post-Soviet Russia. He established a Cultural Policy Studies Institute in the 90s. And uh, he continued doing the same as uh, Georgi, his father. So he traveled now all around Russia, uh, helping local authorities and regional governors to uh, create their cultural strategies and he used shadravitsky's prospective reflexivity uh, methodology in doing that. Um, there is just additional complication to that if, uh, if you are interested. So um, it's it, it became controversial recently, especially with Russia's invasion uh, of Crimea and Russia's war in Ukraine, uh, and Putin's use of the idea of uh, the Russian world or Russkiy Mir, the Russian Mir, as uh, an ideological idea justifying that Russia can claim its interests anywhere around the world. Where Russian speaking people live. And the very idea of this Russian world as having no boundaries and being somehow integrated as a prospective. Reflexive Collective, was proposed by uh, the same Piotr Shadrovitsky and his colleagues in the late 90s and early 2000s. Uh, so today, uh, Piotr is, of course, uh, distancing himself from Putin and the specific use um, of um of this concept, but it also has to be said that very many high uh, politicians and uh, functionaries in Putin's regime, they went through those management schools um, in Shadrovitsky's tradition. So we they, they sort of form their own network. So, so there's this kind of mind-boggling history where... Um, when a completely intellectual idea gets translated into practice and it leads to creation of very particular policy and political communities that, that I try to unpack in my book.
1: I mean, that, that's just one example. And, and, and the book is packed with uh, an incredibly kind of rich range of uh, of these uh, both, I guess, kind of individual characters and, uh, and also uh, kind of broader histories and, and broader narratives. Uh, we've sort of scratched the surface of the book and and obviously there's so much more we could have talked about. You you sort of alluded, you you mentioned in the British context, this uh, attempt to build a new railway line that has been like an absolute disaster uh, from sort of start to finish uh, really. And and I wonder as a kind of like concluding question, uh, I could get you to reflect on the meaning of the book for kind of contemporary readers, you know, for the kind of contemporary world. Are, Are there any, um, lessons uh, that the book has to teach us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the reasons why uh, so much of my research looks into the non-Western European cases is because I find them absolutely fascinating. And uh, that history, I think, is just purely so interesting. But there are more general Things as you see, more general lessons that can be learned, and sometimes looking outside of Western context, we can see those lessons in, in many ways maybe more clearly because um, the political and social context of um, of the way in which predictive expertise was used in the Soviet and Russian context is just so is just so dysfunctional, uh, but it also makes scientific prediction to stand out really very very clearly it, it looks less mundane so to speak I, I guess one of the reasons why um, we haven't looked so much into scientific prediction prediction before is because they are just everywhere you know we're almost like common sense uh, they are hard to spot but in the Soviet context scientists really had to fought to develop that form of knowledge because it had a very very strong potential to Critique the political regime. Um, so I, I I guess the the main lesson is to is that we really need uh, one can say an epistemological literacy as part of. Uh, um, educating our managers, policymakers, uh, and the decision makers uh, who use uh, scientific expertise, all sorts of research reports, who work with data, uh, who need data for their day-to-day decisions, and uh, the reason for that is that um, it seems like we kind of understand, you know, from the common sense perspective. Um, we think we we know what scientific predictions are about we it's information about the future, right about what will happen, but it's not and and that's what I try to show in the book um predictions scientific predictions are not about what will happen in the future it's about organizing the very production of knowledge in a very particular and continuous way, and it's a way of living with complexity and uncertainty. So the difference between prediction and uh, a scientific fact is that predictions always carry a high degree of um, uncertainty with them. And uh, basically what happens is that... uh, when scientists or researchers produce some sort of forecasts or projections or predictions about the future, and when we do not get fulfilled, uh, then you know, if you do not understand how scientific predictions work, then you might think, "Oh, but we are rubbish scientists. You know, last time we predicted this, it hasn't happened. Why should they listen to them again? And we had that debate very strongly manifest during COVID. Uh, the beginning of COVID pandemic, you you might remember. And that was actually when I was finalizing my book. So it was incredibly interesting to see if a whole kind of public debate and questioning of predictions to unfold. Um, So in in terms of climate change, again, so... uh, the level of predict- prediction and predictability, what can be predicted with uh, what degree of certainty? Can predictions of uh, how the change in uh, temperature and uh, atmospheric movement and, and water and land, how will that impact very particular um, places? Can, can we have those very precise predictions? And can we have those precise predictions uh, about you know long term, many years to come. So we can have fairly good weather prediction for the next one or two days, but and we have some, we can have some general idea of how the weather might look in a year from now. But can we tell it with great certainty about how what will happen in ten, twenty, or thirty years? Um, the problem is that uh, when you plan infrastructure and when you plan uh, investments at the national and international levels you, you do want to have that information right <laughs> but the problem is that you can't you can't plan economy for more than 30 years um because again the economic models because of um, discounting uh, the value of the current monetary value uh, disappears. It becomes zero in 30 years because of um, inflation. So what I'm trying to say is that being aware about the levels of complexity and the technicalities of scientific predictions and those predictive models would, would help to align expectations of what what is the value of predictive scientific expertise. So the problem becomes, uh, or the problem is uh, expressed most clearly when uh, policymakers, we have some sort of um, almost astrological expectations from scholars, you know. So please do this research project and tell us what will happen and so so that decision makers in their full confidence could take some sort of action. So it doesn't work like that, uh, and 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 while at public policy level that's kind of acknowledged, and we have so many science uh, and research uh, advisors, uh, when it comes to public education, public engagement, uh, there is a huge gap in understanding how predictive knowledge works, and uh, filling this gap is is really important uh, for. A number of reasons. So one of them would be, you know, kind of uh, generating public trust and understanding of science in relation to uh, environmental and climate crisis. Uh, But also, uh, you know, it it would help people plan their future finances, their future pensions. Maybe it would help them to respond to economic crisis in a way that is less frustrating. so, so, there are lots of kind of practical implications, I, as, as a sociologist and a historian, of course, I'm, I'm most interested in intellectual implications because it's just so fascinating, but, but I, I could see about a lot of public value in um, increasing um, literacy and production as well.
1: And do you think a future book in this, or, or are you going to be uh, working and, and writing on uh, different subjects?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I, I, w- I would love to work more, looking at how uh, scientific production evolves in relation to the onset of artificial intelligence. And we didn't have time uh, this time to talk more about cybernetics. I pay quite a lot of attention to. Um, cybernetics in my book, which is like prehistory of AI, looking at um, predicting uh, behaviors in extreme short term. And and this is what uh, all those clever algorithmic uh, applications are doing today. So it's really interesting how this uh, algorithmic prediction as a technology is going to scale up and in what contexts and what it will do to, to popular understanding of prediction, and maybe it will generate a new model of scientific prediction. I don't know. So I would be very much interested in exploring that. But in addition to that, I'm also working on um, predicting uh, you know, the future um, the future of radioactive waste and nuclear facilities, uh, so again in relation to ongoing energy crisis, there is renewed debate about, uh kind of nuclear renaissance and re-nuclearizing um, energy systems in, in Europe, possibly even in the US. But the problem with the nuclear energy systems is that they generate a lot of radioactive waste, which will stay extremely hazardous for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of years. So how do you manage those extremely hazardous materials, which are not stationary which are also evolving and changing uh, safely how do you guarantee the security in this extreme long term so um, so I do hope to connect my insights into the epistemology of prediction uh, management policy making but also this very complex materiality of nuclear waste um, in my next book hopefully.